Bring, bring that out. Okay. Cross politic begins in three, two, one. Hey, y'all, welcome to Cross Politic on the Fight Lab Feast Network. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. We're bringing it from the Raging Cajun Lafayette, Louisiana. <laughs> wow. Yeah. These some rowdy folks down here. For people who don't see the crowd, there's only like three people cheering. <laughs> That's power right there. That's Gideon's army right there, though. I know, I know. I want to be with them. These, these raging Cajuns are crazy. I didn't say that. I, I, think that, <laughs> I said they was rowdy, remember? I think that's a welcome that goes in the record books. Yes, that was absolutely. A good one. Hands I mean, down. I mean, we've been yeah. in front of, like, you know, a thousand people before, and I don't think they, I don't know if they were I, just... I think that's better than y'all's Bodine. <laughs> it's Boudin. Boudin. And he, and he oh, said it wrong. That's how you get hung around here. <laughs> I didn't right, right. I went too far. Yeah, yeah. Too far. Not funny. <laughs> well, uh... Welcome to Cross Politic. We are we are in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana, with Tactics Con, uh, Pastor Stuart Emmerdon. Uh, he's been uh, grateful. Uh, he's been our our host this weekend. It's been great to have you guys. Um, Thank you. Great to have you guys. Y'all yeah. learned some good stuff. Can I? I got to bring this up real quick. And what a humble host. Do you know who's not speaking at the conference and who did not have himself on this panel? This man right here. Because if it was it. me. I would have been the first speaker y'all heard from. <laughs> just to let y'all know, I'm with these guys. So I just think that's very kind of you, sir. So we had to put you up here. Yeah, you know. we, we made him come up on the show. And we're also grateful to have uh, Chris Wiley, C.R. Wiley, with us. Uh, I'm more excited about that. <laughs> Let's go, Chris. Um, y'all know Chris uh, from Theology Podcast. You know him from his books, Man of the House, and... Um, House in the War, uh, Household in the War for the Cosmos, House of Tom Bomber. There's a lot of houses. There's a message there somewhere. Yeah, it's like it's almost like you're trying to make a point. Yeah. Yeah. Right, there is a point. Yeah, okay, yeah, well, maybe I'll figure it out one of these days. Um, anyways, the, the, the theme, of course, has been build, fight, win uh, this weekend. And as, as part of it, um, we've, uh, I mean, I think you had a really good summary of all the talks just a minute ago. And I think you should... Um, say that one more time, because and, and, I think that's a really good setup for what we want to talk about. Yes, show. sir. So we, from all the things that we've heard today, I think we can sum it up in three points. One is confess your sins and actually do it, yeah. right? Not get, just... Get clean. Yeah, get clean. Don't just think about it. Don't just imagine yourself doing it. Really confess your sins. If you've got people to confess sin to, then do it. Execute those things and move in that direction. So confess your sin. Get your household in order. This is a sequential order of things, I should say, right? So confess your sin first, then move, get your household put in right order, and then pick a fight. Yeah. And when we say pick a fight, we mean find a, find a worthwhile cause, put your foot down, lock up, and be ready to go to war over it. Right. So I think one of the things that you, you come to a, a conference like this and you think, yes, I need, I need to do that. I need to get involved. And initially, it can also seem like, whoa, that's huge. Um, where, where do I begin? And I think one of the, one of the pieces that can be really helpful that, that Gabe was alluding to, but really kind of maps on all the talks in different ways, is, is the fact that God established three basic governments in the world, the family, the church, and the state. And, but not only did he establish those governments, he also gave them assignments. Um, this is where actually the idea of limited government comes from, which is, so all authority, all power is derived from Jesus. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth 
belongs to me, therefore go. But we ought to rush over that. That means all real authority, and Romans 13 teaches this, all power comes from God. All authority comes from God. But that means that all human authority is not absolute, which Gabe just mentioned a minute ago. It's limited. It's limited by Christ. He has all authority. No one else has all authority. And so that means that every earthly human authority has a certain kind of authority that's been delegated to them. Okay? It's not absolute, but we can say more than that. It's also limited by the assignments that God gives them. And so, in particular, those three governments have been given specific assignments. The family government has been given the assignment of taking care of uh, the health and health care and welfare and education yes. of the households. Right. This is this is. That sounded like a government organization, but it's not. It is a government. I mean, it is a government organization, but, but not the government. Civil, but not, civil government. Not, Health, not, education, and welfare doesn't our civil government take care of that? Yeah, they're not supposed to. That's the whole point. Um, the um, so so you have um, their job. So you say, where does that say that? Well, Deuteronomy six. Um, I love God with everything you are, and teach your children all day long. Um, that's education. Uh, that's nurture. Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, husbands, you're to love your wives as your own bodies. Uh, you're to take care of them as you do your own bodies. That means feeding them. That means clothing them. That means putting a roof over their head. That means making sure the heat is on, or I guess the air, AC's on down here. Amen. Most of the time, um, except for right now. Um, and, um, and then, of course, uh, Ephesians 6 says, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Again, that's caring for them, that's providing for them, that's teaching them. That is, and then we can add to that 1 Timothy 5, which says that a man that doesn't take care of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And that's in the context of taking care of widows. It does not say, when you have a widow, make sure they're on Social Security. That's right. It says, your job is to take care of your widows, your grandma. And it says, first, see if they've got any family that can take care of them. The second line of defense is the church, under certain circumstances, can help with widows. But the first line of defense is the family, and nowhere does he say, call up the Romans and see if they can get you some insurance. It's not their job. The second government is the church. The church's um, assignment from Jesus is to disciple the nations, baptize them, oversee worship and discipleship. That's the job of the church government. The church government's job is not to tell you what to eat. The church government's job is, is not to, um, to execute criminals. The church's, the church's job is to teach the whole word of God, to oversee worship and sacraments. Preach the word, administer the sacraments. Um, that's, that's their job. That's their sphere that they're sovereign over. And then the, go- the, the civil government's job is to punish evildoers. They're to punish criminals. And this is where the, the distinction between sins and crimes matters that, that Gabe mentioned. The point of that is really to actually designate jurisdictions. If it's a sin, it's, if, if it's only a sin, it's not the civil government's job. But what, what we do, is this goes to the idolatry of the state thing, is we say, if something's wrong, we say, well, there ought to be a law. That's right. Mm-hmm. Which is often saying that the civil government ought to take care of this problem, but we need to stop and say, wait, is this the civil government's job? Mm-hmm. Did Jesus give them this job? And, and then it, it takes really extreme things like COVID with people saying you have to stand six feet apart or put this piece of you know, pay, uh, cloth on your face or take this 
this jab in your arm or whatever. You've got to close down your, your, your church. You're not an essential business. All the crazy stuff. And we're like, wait, 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 what are you doing? But for a hundred years, civil government has been telling us to do things that's not their job. Can we, we camp there for a minute? Because this is really important. I want to, because as soon as you say that, everybody starts thinking about, but there's certain things that are like, there's crimes here that are, or there's sins here that's really important to deal with. And we see it everywhere in our culture with the social justice movement, with the trans movement, with the thought crimes, right? Um, there, there's, there's actually things like you shouldn't think that way towards people. Racism. Racism. Racism, things like that. And, and I think there's a tendency for us to say, so then the government does have a responsibility to that, right? And it's like one of the governments do or two of the governments do, Family but which ones, yeah. not, right? Not the state. Not the state. So are we, this is very important because when these governments are working together rightly, then these kind of things get dealt with. I hate you because you're black. Did my child say that? Oh, you're you going to have a problem when you come to my house, right? <laughs> right? You don't get to talk about people like that. That's a person made in the image of God. Family court just got initiated. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're going to deal with it. Or is that somebody in my church? Or is that, or is that, or exactly. Yeah. Oh, oh you're, you're a member of my church. Oh, I need to have a meeting with you. And the state has to have that. When those two other institutions collapse and they fall apart, you're still going to have that being dealt with. But the problem is going to be in the government that shouldn't be dealing with it. Right. Like, and so. Well, and this goes back to Gabe's point. Again, the, the whole prohibition movement. Yes. The, the, like that was a great example of probably some really bad sin going on with alcoholism and alcohol abuse, which is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And what did we do? We went and asked Uncle Sam to fix that for us. Mm. But that's, mm. that was not his job. We, we asked him to take care of the health of our families. Oh, you want, you want the federal government to take care of the health of your family? Really? Really you want that? And that's how we got here. That's how we got here. Uh, but th that's why this matters. And the, and the point that, but that Knox is making is you, um, as, when, as other governments that have been given authority by Jesus Christ abdicate their authority and, and men say, I don't want to take care of my parents in their old age. I, I don't want to yeah. take care of my the education of my children. That's too hard. That's too expensive. I don't want to do these things. But when you abdicate, you create a vacuum. And then when it's not being done, you create at least the temptation where you say, okay, Government, I want you to step in. There ought to be you, a law. Yeah, there ought to be a law. You got to fix this. You got to make this work. But, but the way out is to repent here. That's right. The, the way out is to repent here. Uh, we had. A, I want to add just ahead. one thing. One thing right there. You, you know that um, fundamentally, it's idolatry when we're appealing to the lawgiver to fix it, um, instead of appealing to God, the lawgiver. Um, to fix it according to his way, we appeal to the government, and and we're you know there ought to be a law. That's that's goes back to idolatry. We're we're appealing. We're we're trying to find who can fix this. I'm going to go to someone who's going to make a law, the all sovereign our all sovereign government, and I'm going to ask them to fix it through law. And instead of what it should have what it should have been, the, you know, using the temperance movement as an example, instead of the pastor. Um, you know, pushing absency vows on their church, it should have been the pastor sitting down with the dad. You need to repent of your drunkenness and you need to love your family. And, and, but the, way, the easy way for a pastor to deal with it is I'll just make everyone stop. Like that's the easier way. Yeah. But that's, making, that's being a Pharisee. Pharisees make yeah. rules that God hasn't made. 
right? So, right that, that's how they got their crazy Sabbath laws in, in the New Testament, where you know you, you, you couldn't harvest, and so if you're walking through a grain field and you're rubbing some grain together, you're breaking Sabbath because they they had like meticulously defined it. Since we don't want to get anywhere close to breaking the law, we, we made six more fences in front of the law. That's what legalism is. Yeah. God didn't say. To, you, you couldn't rub this, you know, your, your grains together and, and have a little bit of grain. It, it, but the Pharisees had, and that's how you end up with those laws. Well, they were doing the same thing with the drinking. Since we don't want anybody drunk, everybody's got to, uh, you know, take these vows and no more wine and, and communion, even though our Lord commanded it. You know, when you're talking about repenting where we're at, it made me think about um, one thing to add. I want to do a plus one to your government, yeah. which is this is a kind of what we're talking about is the kind of gun that has three plus one. OK, <laughs> which is self-government. Mm-hmm. And so when your repentance starts, there's a tendency to say, y'all got about to get it right. Church, you better get this right. Family, you better get this right. State, you better get this right. But then you don't point at yourself. And that's where repentance really starts first. And this is something that um, I've learned from Pastor Wilson, which is men are be, to be tough for their families, not to be hard on their families, right? And so that means that the, when I come into the house and I see things array that <laughs> go to crazy, all right, Lord, let me come and take responsibility for the mess. This is the mess that you've given me, and I'm not doing a good job with it. So forgive me where there's a sin in my heart that I need to repent of, and then let me model for my family what repentance looks like. Dad is always cleaning up. I'm going to go hang with Dad. <laughs> Dad is always, he's, so, he's always fixing things. I'm going to go fix things with Dad. You know, and you start realizing that as you are repenting and then working in what repentance looks like before your family, they start modeling that too. And you say, hey, guys. Daddy's blown it. <laughs> I have not done a great job with keeping the car clean. This is my mess here. I'm sorry I haven't modeled for you how to take care of the things that God has blessed us with. I'm sorry. I'm going to take the trash out of the vehicle. Will you guys help me? You know, and, and you model that for them. And then you start seeing that this has a domino. It's so simple, but it has a domino effect in everywhere in your family. And one of the ways you know you've gotten repentance right here and it's modeling your family is you start hearing your family start to repent without you. Mm. You start hearing little things in the house where it's like, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I did not do that right. And you're like, praise God. It's starting to make its way through the body. <laughs> the heart's pumping properly. Right? But if we got to have self-government in place before even the rest of these um, start taking place because we, we're pitting there first. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that we talk about it at church is it's concentric circles. It starts with you and then into your next circle of influence and out and out and out from there. And if it doesn't start with you, a lot of times people... Um, I've found they, they want to aspire for these huge accomplishments. Uh, I want I'm going to start a Christian school. I'm going to I'm going to run for mayor and get everything right in my town. But their personal life and their household life is still out of order, and it it's not going to work that way. It's you're not going to have the domino effect. You're not going to have the the effectiveness that you possibly could have had if you would have started centrally, right? Like you you start simply. I have a I have a question though. So. Uh, the church that I pastor, Christ Church Opelousas, the average income in that town is like $17,000, um, something along those lines. So, you know, well below the poverty line here in the state of Louisiana, which is already, you know, broke. So if we're trying to think about, we have people who, we have got a family who comes in, um, they become members of the church, they make $17,000 a year total for their whole household. They're on, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, Pastor Chris, uh, they're on every form of assistance that exists. How do we start moving that direction? How do we, how do we start bringing them through um, 
uh, off of the off of the false savior of the government and do it effectively. Yeah, I'll I'll chime in here and then I'd love to hear Chris's thoughts too. But um, I, I would just go back to the talks that we've just been right through. But I would say, um, all, so all forms of of physical slavery ultimately come from spiritual slavery. We're, we're slaves to the state. We're slaves. Uh, we're debt slaves. We're slaves to government programs because we're we're slaves in our hearts. So I, I would say start by just clearing the house that way. So family comes into church and, and is on every government program, and I'd say, all right, let's first of all make sure everybody's in fellowship. No unconfessed sin, no no bitterness, no resentment. Everybody's walking in the joy of the Lord. Okay, let's do that for six months or a year. Just walking in the joy of the Lord. Don't change anything else, just walk in the joy of the Lord. Then, all right, step two, are you working hard? Are you working hard? Now, you know, you don't have to wait. A work six days. Work six days. Work hard and tell the truth and deal with sin. And, and, what, and I mentioned this in the talk, but God gave us two hands and one mouth, which means that you have the ability to actually make more than you consume. And, and, that, and so start just practicing basic um, faithful Christian habits with your own money, with, with your own time, with your own habits. Make sure that you're, make sure that you're, uh, <laughs> trying to help Chris out here. He's been, he's been, he's just a pastor. He he's been, to somebody he's been else. tearing up pretty good up here. Just passing napkins around. Um, the, uh, um, but start, you know, don't spend more than you, you make start saving, start tithing regularly. Um, practice generosity in your, but you've got to start living within your means and but then what that does is once if you're working hard and you're paying your own bills and you're keeping that apostolic tradition man who doesn't work doesn't eat well you start working you can start feeding your family well pretty soon it takes a little bit of time and depending on circumstances and so on you can typically start getting to the point where you're, you're taking care of your own bills and, and then what I would say is with the, with the encouragement and counsel of pastors and deacons and so forth, um, start weaning yourself off the program. Start weaning yourself off, off the, plant, off the, uh, the government uh, subsidies. And, uh, and with your goal, the goal of being, I want to be a free man, which means I want to pay my own way. I want to provide for my own family. I, I want to eat my own bread. That, that's what it says in, in, in Thessalonians. You want to eat your own bread. And so that should be the goal. And... And um, Pastor Wilson loves to say that God meets us where we are, not where we should have been. That's grace, right? His grace is that he meets us where we are, not where we should have been, but he doesn't leave us there. And so as, as you repent and you begin taking responsibility for yourself, for your family, um, you, you, uh, most, most people in this country can, can, can begin to climb out of that hole and really can uh, begin to pay their own way. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, thinking about this particular family you've described, um, without getting into the details, there are a couple things to think about. One is holiness is very inexpensive. Mm. So once you... It's actually cheaper than sin. That's correct. That's right. It's free. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the things that um, are the undoing of of the, of the people that we care about, and even ourselves, uh, are costly in a range of ways, obviously in terms of their consequences, but just even on the upfront costs. <laughs> you know, so uh, self-mastery 
is the place to begin, and Toby uh, got into that. I think, too, uh, the other side of that is being able to believe that it's possible. Mm. So a lot of times that people... you can be liberated. Right. You can be that free folk, in Christ. A lot of folks have given up uh, any aspiration for that. Mm. Uh, they've lost uh, confidence, obviously, in themselves, uh, but also in the power of God to make it possible to be more than they are. So uh, I would I would get to you know I'd begin in that at that area and be realistic. I mean, you're in a particular community. It's not as though uh, everybody in this town uh, is kind of living at, with six figures and that kind of thing. Let's be realistic. But at the same time, the thing you should be aspiring to uh, is living within your means and believing that God can help you do that. Um. Just to amen what, what you said, Bishop. Um, <laughs> Thank you for the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the Bishop promotion. Wiley, right. not Riley. You know, Bishop Wiley. Bishop Wiley, my bad, my bad. Part of what, uh, whenever the, the mercy of the wicked is cruel, mm. and that's one of the things we don't understand with the, with the government assistance, having someone who's been on it, they penalize you for being successful. Yes. They penalize yes. you for working, and they keeps you in a particular position where you can't grow. Yes. Right? And so every time that we would, <laughs> we were in a bad place, and every time that we would try and get out, they would take the rug out from underneath us, and it was almost like a threat. Hey, if you do this, you won't have this money anymore. That's right. That's right. Okay, so then I can't ever be any, I can't do anything greater than this unless you raise the money. So guess how I start to think? I need to vote for people who are going to give me more money, not allow me to be able to make more money for myself. Yeah. So now I need the government to give me 32, 30, 50, 50 K a year because I need more money. Yeah. But it's not allowing me to, to be made in the image, somebody who's made in the image of God to do the work that I'm designed to do. Yeah. And so it keeps us enslaved because of that. So they don't, they don't ever, they're not trying to help you. It is one of the things we got to understand about them. It's not there to really help you. And if you have to be on it, if you're going to be on it, one of the things that you need to do is like changing your mentality about this. Like you said, you need to know this is possible is to say, okay, I got this 17 coming in. How can I work under the, I mean, say that. How can I work however I possibly can? How can you be a drug dealer? To, um, like, I'm just going to say, you know, in a way that they don't see everything you're doing. Uh, <laughs> can I make seven? Can I make 17K from loving my neighbor as well? Okay, that just gave me some extra money. I just proved that I can do that and make that money without their help at all. Well, then that makes you say, well, how much work do I need to do <laughs> to right. double that? Right. Mm, okay, well, we can do that. Man, I got some kids, too. They can work. We'll just take Saturdays and we'll throw it on here. And I'm not telling you this as somebody who hasn't tried this. I was 13 years old out in Minneapolis selling pictures for $20 while my mom couldn't work because she had just went through a divorce with my dad and destroyed her. And we were in an efficiency place, a little room that's probably 300 square feet. This is the three of us. And I was able at 13 to go out there and make the money to move us out of there. And we just did one thing at a time. While it was there, we're not going to be a prisoner to it. We're going to figure out how to get away from it because we know they want us to be prisoners to it. Yeah. So if I'm going to be here, 
I'm going to figure out how to get out from here. Yeah. And what are the little things that I can do every day that chip away at this so I can have some self-sufficiency? I've already proved I can live off of 17. Mm. I've already proven that. So, okay, I'm going to try and get another 17. If I can do that, then I can stabilize myself. And then, man, this world is crazy. God's made it this particular way that the more I work, the more he gives to me. Mm. The more that I give and bless my neighbors, the more they bless me. Mm. Regardless of the economy, when you belong to God's covenant people and you're doing things rightly and you have your sins forgiven and you're repenting, believe it or not, there's certain covenantal blessings that yeah. follow you. Right. Amen. And, you know, and it doesn't matter how the economy is. Israel was inside of Egypt and there was still light in Goshen. That's because of the God we serve. Mm. So we can, this is the mentality we need to say is who is really providing for us? Mm-hmm. And if God is providing for us, obey God, do what he says, do the work, however hard it is, and just do the next thing and watch him open up the doors and opportunities. Amen. One of the things uh, I think uh, to keep in mind too, I don't know this particular family, but the young men, the boys, are a good place to, to work. So I, I, you know, as I'm hearing Knox, you know, he and I can relate to some things from our own, our past. Uh, one of the guys that was a real help to me was a, uh, believe it or not, a guidance counselor in junior high. And he was kind of a hippie. Uh, he actually came to the projects that I lived in at the time and uh, wanted to see the situation I was in. I had taken a test and he saw the results of the test and he says, you know, you know, you're pretty bright. Why do you have all F's? He <laughs> said, I, I hate school and I don't want to be here. <laughs> that's, that's why. He said, well, I'm going to do something for you. I was, I think, 14, 15 at the time. I said, I'm going to get you a job. So this is a guy who uh, found an employer that was willing to pay me under the table cash. Turned out they were connected to the mafia. It was, it was a shady deal. Yeah, yeah. But I like it. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it, it, was a, it was one of those experiences where you're like, hey, Somebody thinks I can do something. You were moving a lot of plastic bags. Heavy. <laughs> it was actually a pharmacy. <laughs> so. Drug dealer. Drug dealer. That's a- <laughs> there, there, was, there was weird stuff going on. Like the more you talk about it, the more I like it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But uh, it, it was marvelous because this was like, I, I got my own money, that kind of thing. I, w- I was, uh, you know, just kind of at a place in life where I needed something like that. I needed somebody to say, you know what, you've got potential, there's something that you, that you can do. Um, and in a situation like this, you know, a lot of these families that find themselves on public assistance, I, I hate to say it, but sometimes the mom or the dad, or both or whatever, are in a really, uh, it, you know, we're talking about a long-term project because these are people who've been in this spot for a long time. Mm-hmm. They've developed particular habits and ways of thinking that are, are going to require a miracle yeah. to overcome. So we need to intervene at a good, sort of in a good place. Um, uh, and sometimes it's when you're talking about young men and young women just coming into adulthood. You know, if they can have a mentor kind of come into their life, not try to replace their parent. Yeah. That's not the job. But just simply to say, you know what, I, I, th- I think there's something you can do that's uh, valuable. Yeah. And I'd like to pay you for it. Yeah. There's something really humanizing about that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, yes. There's something really like affirming about the image of God when someone says, can you help me with this? Or can you do this? And then when they can and they do it and they perform well, and then you thank them and reward them with pay, 
it's incredibly humanizing. And that's part of what we've, what we've destroyed um, in this country with so much uh, of this welfare mentality is it, it destroys their humanity. It, it, and, it's, and it's not, uh, it, right. it's not living in accordance with the way God made the world. Um, and it, it's creating this superficial, these superficial uh, distance between work and reward, and, and divorcing those things, and it's in, it's incredibly dehumanizing. Well, I think it, I'm stealing this from you. Can I quote you to yourself? Is that acceptable? Okay. So, I, I, was I, it a good quote? We'll find out. <laughs> so, I, I remember you said that free market economics. I'm paraphrasing here. Free market economics is the act of gift giving to one another. That's right. That's, you, that's George Gilder. I stole it from George. Oh, Gilder. all right, all right, all right. Well, the chain of quotes. Was it his original? I think so. Okay. It's pretty, right. it's, it's, He's a pretty original guy. So free yeah. market economics being the act of gift giving, the, the person who performs the service is serving, yeah. right? Like they're giving their best service, and the person who's paying for the service is giving their best gift to the one who performed it. And right. And... What we've been instructed in, you know, by the world around us, is that free market economics, capitalism, you know, bad word. Yeah. That's not good. When really that is that is kindness. Right. You're saying, hey, you've helped me so much that I will, I will give you this. Right. Unfortunately, some some of the proponents of capitalism have just bought in and said, yeah, basically capitalism is greed, but it's some kind of good greed. And I, <laughs> right, and, and I, right. And I, and I think that was just an awful move. No, it's not. And if it really is greed, it's not going to work. Yeah. It's not going to work because we live in God's world in which greed doesn't work. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is, and this is what Gilder points out, he says, no, this is God's world. And it's a world in which giving is better than receiving. Yeah. But when you give, and you give good gifts, and you give good services and good goods... Um, people want to give you gifts in return so that you can keep giving that gift again. And that's free market. What happens in a socialist system is essentially the government doesn't trust its citizens. Mm -hmm. It doesn't trust the citizens to make good choices, economic choices. So it says to the citizens, trust us, we'll manage things better. (laughs) Which never happens. It never happens. (laughs) Right. You know, one of the things that, before we leave the topic, I just have to say this because it's just, watch your mouth when you're, you know, when you're in the situation financially and things aren't looking right and wherever you're at, watch your mouth and don't complain. I mean it. Like, that is the absolute... You want to stay where you're at? Yeah. Keep complaining. Complain, right. I mean, and this is something that has taken me a little time to learn, but I finally got it. Things were getting really, really crazy. And I was like, Lord, ah, this is all messed up. And then I start seeing... At, we were going through family worship, and you start seeing the children of Israel... God comes in and saves them from Egypt, and then Egypt is coming after them. And they start, you brought us out here to die. I was like, did y'all just see them plagues? <laughs> you don't think that that God still lives? <laughs> you know, we get saved. God saves us and transforms our life and makes us, gives us new hearts with new desires to love them. And we're like, oh, but I don't think you can take care of my money. <laughs> That's us. And we get home and whatever situation we're in, the envy part happens and we start complaining. Oh, I don't have this. I don't have that. It's rice and gravy again. You know, Uh, no, it's rice and gravy again. (laughs) (laughs) We actually really like rice and gravy down here. So that's a South Louisiana staple. It's potatoes or whatever it is. (laughs) Idaho potatoes. But whatever it is that you have, you, you start having... 
a tone of gratefulness. And one of the ways you hear complaining happening when you don't, you don't always see it in yourself like envy, listen in your house. How are your kids responding? Ah, ah, ugh. Are you hearing those things? It's like, ooh, what am I doing that my family isn't grateful for this stuff that God's given us? Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this rusted car. Thank you so much that I can drive. I don't have a horse. Thank you. And if you have a horse, <laughs> thank you, Lord, for the horse. You know? <laughs> but having an attitude of gratefulness reshapes the story. Amen. Look what, how much God has been providing for us. Lord, this is not where I want to be. I want to do so much more for you. But thank you that I'm here right now. Help me to be a good steward of this. So that I can honor you and you can continue to add to me. How can I bless others with this? I'll tell you, my mom used to take, and she would tithe off of our welfare. <laughs> she would take that money. And she's like, well, Lord, you done gave it to us. <laughs> this belonged to the church. <laughs> and then she'd go back and find somebody else and she'd be giving away the money <laughs> that we'd be getting. Because she's like, God, you st we shouldn't even have this. But you've been kind to us. This is not where we want to be at. But thank you for the hole in the wall. <laughs> you know? And so, and I watched, and I would be like, Mom, what are you doing? And her heart of gratefulness, she just saw wherever God put her, she was grateful to be there. And every moment, our situation started to change, and we started seeing God was kind to us in these moments. So don't complain. Don't have an attitude of complaining. Yeah, oh. I, this, I've got to tell a story about tithing, because when I was at, uh, working in that pharmacy, I... I remember uh, getting pharmacy. Drug dealer. Drug dealer. I mean, pharmacy. So I, I was I was I was a young Christian, and uh, so I, I had spent all my money on like I don't know stuff that kids spend money on, and all all that was left was my tithe. Yeah. And so I was walking home, and I look I go by by this uh, sports sporting goods store, and there's a soccer ball in the window, and I said I got to have that soccer ball. So I go in and I use my tithe money for the soccer ball. And I say, Lord, I'll pay you twice as much next. <laughs> <laughs> so I, as soon as I come out of the store, I, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this new, new acquisition. And I put it down the ground and I start running and kicking it. And that's out of nowhere, a blur, a dog came in and bit that ball <laughs> and ran. <laughs> with that ball in his mouth. And I chased it for like a mile. <laughs> I finally got the ball and ripped it out of his mouth and it was ruined, totally ruined. I said, I learned my lesson. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I've been I always think about the point about gratitude, Knox. Um, every, every Lord's Day, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And every week, um, I think about as I'm, you know, I, I, I read the verses from 1 Corinthians. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, mm. he took bread and he gave thanks. Mm. And, I th and I don't think it's an accident at all that oh. the Lord has us doing this. He says, as often as you gather together, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. And every week, mm. there we are saying, he, in the night in which he was betrayed, mm -hmm. he took bread and he gave thanks. And then, of course, he breaks the bread, symbolizing his own body about to be broken, and, and, and says, now you do this in remembrance of me. You, you do this. And, and, I, and I don't think he means just do this. I think he means do this with everything. Mm -hmm. Everything he gives us. He's, in, in the night in which you get the cancer diagnosis, in the night in which you're not sure how you're going to pay the bills. That's right. In the night That's in which right. it's challenging with the kids. In the night in which you don't think you can do it anymore. You take that mm. and you give thanks. Mm. 
and, and you trust God that in that he's going to feed you. That's right. He's going to feed you. And I, and I don't think that's just like some kind of super spiritual pietistic thing. I think it's trusting God and giving thanks particularly for it, knowing that there's nothing that comes to you that out, is outside of the will of your father. Nothing comes to you outside of the will of your father. And so if it's coming to you, then you know this is hard, this is difficult, this is challenging. I don't know the other side. I don't know what's going to happen. But this is from my father, and it is for my good. And so thank you. Amen. Thank you for it. And I think it's in that gratitude and that thanksgiving that then makes you, what do you do? Then he gives the bread to us. You, you share it. I, you know, you, 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 be, you become a giving person. Yeah. And I think in that, in, in that your, your mom's instinct of just like, I'm tithing off of this too. I'm tithing off of this too. Completely different than Chris's teenage self. <laughs> your mother pharmacy. was much, a much better Christian than that. <laughs> you know, you also got 1 Corinthians 10 that reminds us that our forefathers complained and God was not pleased with them. Right? <laughs> right? right? Yeah. That's... Don't forget what, how it ended up for them right. from complaining, you know? Yeah. So I, th- I think we got about five, seven minutes left. I'd love to just kind of finish. Um, so we kind of really camped out on the family sphere, and I'd love to finish kind of just maybe defining the church sphere, defining the uh, civil government sphere, and then um, a young man is going to get ready, get your questions ready, and, and he's going to w- walk around. And it better be good questions. Th- yeah, yep. there's no bad there's questions. No, <laughs> there's, there's no dumb questions. Only dumb question askers. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. We, like, we'll just call you nice. <laughs> inside joke, right? Yeah, that was, that was, inside that joke. was a very <laughs> nice question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hint, hint. Um, I think the thing I'll wrap up with and then, and then um, definitely um, get ready to raise your hand and, and ask a question is, is just this. I think um, in a moment like this, in, in, in a, I think um, I was talking, we were talking to Knox about this yesterday at dinner, Gabe and I, and um, the story that, that he brought up, is he, he mentioned the story of Gideon. And it actually ties everything together beautifully because Gideon was um, threshing wheat in a wine press, which means that he was taking, he was, he was hiding his work. He was doing work under the table for a pharmacy. You're supposed to make wine in a wine press. <laughs> because um, it says that the Midianites were mugging them, which is basically what the federal government does with us. That's right. Right? So, you know, God, it, it, first, in First Samuel, okay, this is a little bit of an aside, but in First Samuel, Saul warns the people, if you get a king, he might tax you as much as God takes from you, as much as a tithe, as much as 10%. Warns them. You might have absolute tyranny. Somebody might think they're like God and take 10% from you. And we think we would be living in a massive reformation if we got it down to 10%. That's right. Right? But that's what they're doing. They're saying 10% is God's claim because God owns everything, which means any civil authority that claims that much is claiming to be God. So anyways, they're mugging us. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, which is yeah, not what wine presses are usually used for, by the way. We're just like, oh, that's very nice of him. Yeah. No, that's not what you'd use wine presses for. He's hiding it so the Midianites don't steal it because of the tax code. Okay. And, um, but then, but then he, you know, he, he gets this um, uh, instruction to go knock down a, an idol that's right. 
in his own father's village. You forgot to mention the most amusing part, oh mighty man of God. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. Man of valor, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Doing business under the table. But here, here's a guy hiding in a wine press yeah. and he's being addressed by yeah. an angel. Yeah. And he's being called a mighty man, yeah. you know. God, yeah. He, um, yeah, God calls those things which are not as though they are. <laughs> as um, though they should be. Yeah. The, um, and, but, but then he goes by night, again, mighty man, mighty man of valor, goes by night because he's afraid of the people of the city, knocks down his dad's, the idol in his dad's town, sets up an altar to God and sacrifices an alt, uh, 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 um, to the Lord. People wake up in the morning, um, what the heck happened to our idol? <laughs> what is uh, this right next to it? <laughs> yeah, what in the world? Um, but, I, but I think there's an interesting kind of um, order there, where as Gideon is being called into this ministry, he begins with the idol in his dad's city. That's right. And, and then it's from in there. In his family. In his family, yeah. yeah. And, and, and so I mean, apparently there's some, you know, there's some idolatry. I mean, his dad is kind of defends him, but kind of not. And, um, but, but I think um, what, what I would just say is this. Um, have it fixed in your mind um, where authority comes from, and that means it's delegated authority. It's authority that Christ gives for particular tasks. It's not for anything you want. It's not a blank check. Family government, husbands and fathers, mothers are, prov- are to provide for um, the, the health, the welfare, the education of their children. Church is the government instituted by God in order to uh, teach the word, uh, to administer the sacraments, to lead worship. And the civil sphere's job is to simply punish criminals. Uh, they are to ensure basic justice, uh, which means that it's fine for them to also tell us, um, you know, uh, equal weights and measures and that kind of thing, uh, which side of the road to drive on. But they're, they, are not, they are not to be encroaching on our health uh, they're not to be providing welfare. They're not to be providing education. And they're not to be going around telling us how far apart our studs are to be. Yeah. Creating jobs. That's not their job. Uh, yeah, their job. Every time a politician says, we're going we're gonna to make our economy great again, then you know they're a bad guy. That's right. Mm. right? What are they trying to do? No, that's what families do. Mm. Families build economies. Free families build free economies. Whenever the state wants to help you with their economy, just think socialism. That's all it is. Um, but you say, wow, uh, we're messed up. Yeah, we're messed up. What do we do? What your job is to do is to do what you are in charge of. That's right. So are you a father? Are you a husband? Are you a mother? Then you're in charge of that. You are responsible before God for that authority that he has delegated to you. Are you a pastor? Are you an elder? Okay, then you also have authority in a church. You're responsible before God to use that authority faithfully, teach the whole word. Commit that your people will know the whole Bible. They will know the difference between sins and crimes. They will know what God says the civil government's job is to do. And if you happen to also be a city council member, a county commissioner, a mayor, if you if you have a civil job, well then you also have authority from God, and you need to be thinking to yourself: My job is primarily to punish evildoers. I am not to bother law-abiding citizens. I am not to hamper law-abiding citizens from doing what God has called them to do. And as much as I am possibly able, I will not follow instructions that instruct me to disobey their boss, who is Jesus Christ. Mm. Who's, our, who's got the microphone? Okay, all right. Well, what's all right, what's your, your name? What grade are you in? Jude, I'm in 10th grade. 10th grade. Oh. I was a bad, bad kid, 10th grade. 
<laughs> Anybody has a question, Drew will run over there to you with the mic. Um, yeah, I just, as you guys are thinking of some great questions, um, Pastor, I was just thinking one of the things that you, you can't change the federal government overnight. That's not going to happen. Um, it's not even designed to be that way. But your house can change pretty fast. Amen. It can change. It, you know, repentance happens, and, and, and the effect of it is pretty powerful. We, we, had, um, we had George Grant. Y'all, raise your hands, because I'm, like, I'm just going to keep talking. George Grant came on our show a couple days ago, and, and he, he was telling us about um, Booker T. Washington. Um, and and his, his philosophy of, of uh, particularly um, encouraging uh, the former slaves yeah. and, and said, what you need to do is you need to work so hard and provide such good services and goods to your community that you are indispensable. That's right. that they, they, they don't care what color your skin is. They don't, they don't care where you came from. They don't care what you believe, but they need what you got. That's right. And I think we need to be thinking that way in terms of our families and our churches. We need to be indispensable in our communities. The communities need to know we need them. We need their businesses. Maybe we get to the point where, I mean, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about Christians judging the angels and we're the ones adjudicating things in our midst. We ought to be the kind of place where the, the pagans start saying, you know what? we're having marriage problems. We don't believe in all that stuff, but they got good marriages. Maybe we should go to their pastor. Right. We should go to their counseling center. Um, they have good businesses or, or their elders. I heard they sorted out a business snarl. I don't really want to pay all the lawyer fees and go to the county government. Maybe their elders would sort out our business snarl, right. even though we're not believers. That's right. That's what we want to be aiming for. We want to make ourselves indispensable. And then at some point, God willing, a bunch of this extra stuff, it just fades away. Go ahead. It was briefly mentioned in one of the talks earlier uh, that it's important to not have an American flag in your church. How important is that? And if you know it's going to cause problems, how would you go about trying to change that? So I, I mentioned that in my talk. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Texas, and, and 4th of July was a, a Sunday where we really just celebrated America and not God. And so in our, in our church service, I'm sure this is probably similar, some places in Louisiana, but they'd bring in their American flags. We'd sing America the Beautiful. I mean, we, you know, it, it was kind of just like a 4th of July fireworks service um, kind of thing. So that is idolatry. Um, it, we're we're synchro, synchronizing, um, worshiping, our, syncretism, synchronizing, yeah, yeah I don't see. Syncretism. <laughs> I uh, see. Cr is just an OG. He just—he's like, I'm just gonna let him do it. <laughs> I'm just gonna let him do it. We—we we all yeah. let you do it, Gabe. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's syncretism, yeah. bringing in and mixing um, uh, worship with God, and, uh, and there's a number of basic things here. Um, for one, when you have an American flag in your church, you're you're communicating something that I don't think you should want to communicate. Uh, you know, the church is for all of God's people, not just for, you know, white uh, suburban Americans. Uh, and, and so I, I think having an American flag kind of communicates those who are German in your church, those who are, you know, w w whatever uh, in your church. And I, I don't think you want to communicate that. Um, so there's some churches maybe who don't have like outright idolatrous worship, but will do funky things like that. I went to a church and spoke at a church up in Northern Coeur d'Alene. And they had the Jewish star flag and the American flag in the church. And, and I'm like, is this only for Jews who are not Christians? Is this church only for Jews and Americans? You know, so you, I, I just think you, want, you don't want to communicate that. And then in addition, there really is an idolatrous element 
uh, especially here in the South, for what it means to worship, especially around the 4th of July? Uh, I'll just add, like, I mean, in some old traditional American churches, you just got the American flag and the Christian flag sitting in the corners, and nobody really, it's just like a, yeah. you know, hey, that you're worshiping in a church in America. And I don't think that's a huge deal to, like, you know, throw down about. You know, I don't think you need to go knock it over like Gideon and be like, hey, I knocked over your idol. Um, I'm Boniface. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but... That's only if they put up the Christmas tree too. <laughs> <laughs> but you might ask, you might ask about it, and ask, you know, why do we do it, and that kind of thing. And I, and I, th- but I think the main thing Gabe's talking about is the ones where you know the church service is co-opted essentially into a Fourth of July parade on a Sunday morning, which like, no, do your parade out on Main Street, sure, be patriotic and thank the Lord for a free country, but don't, don't let God's worship be co-opted by that. I think that's the main point. No synchronizing. (laughs) (laughs) Gabe, let's go back to your point about the politicians. Your first point was politicians only care about cash and power. But then after you get down to number 10 in your talk, (laughs) it was like run for political office. How does a uh, Christian who's who's clean with the Lord, how does he avoid becoming, jumping right back up to two if he's, if, okay, I'm ready to go, do we have any examples other than, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and even he wasn't that great. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. How, do, how do we do that? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious when there's a true Christian politician who genuinely believes in the supremacy of scriptures over his life. Because he gets uh, death threats right away. Yeah, or um, yeah. I didn't get death threats right away, but like... Pretty quick. It, it came, it came. Um, <laughs> You started carrying, I remember. Yeah. All right. After, um, I'll get to more of your question in a second. After I got arrested, I, had to, I was running for county commissioner. I had to take my magnets off my wife's car, county commissioner magnets. Um, I had, I was like literally, I got arrested on Wednesday. Um, I was in interviews all day Thursday um, from the arrest. And then on Friday, my wife needed me to pick some stuff up at the store. I was walking by, pe- by people in Safeway, like, like under their breath, cussing me out. Like, it's just the weirdest thing. I called my body armor buddy. I was like, please send me some body armor. <laughs> and I took my, my, I had a big uh, eight foot sign out in front of my yard. I took it down. It was crazy. So I, um, a, polit- a Christian who's living it out is probably going to experience some of that a little bit. Um, but I mean, I think that the, the more important, you, you see the, the obvious supremacy of the scriptures in their lives and, and the conviction that they're, I mean, Dusty Devers is a great example in Oklahoma. Uh, so, it, and, and I, I think, um, I don't want to state this in a way where, like, um, uh, you know, he needs to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. But a lot of politicians, I hate saying that in this context, because a lot of politicians use that verse in a way to never be wise and never be innocent. Uh, they, they say it, it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card for them. Oh, well, this is why I didn't end abortion in our state, because I'm, I'm trying to... We're going to get there. We're going to get there. You know, things, things like that, they'll, they'll use it to, to weasel out of the, of the conversation. Um, you know, for example, uh, the LGBT question. Every Christian politician knows that's coming. And so they need to be ready for how to answer that. Hmm. I was ready. Um, one of the ways I was going to... I have no problem answering it straight up. But one of the ways I was going to answer that question was they, they asked me, you know, what, you know, how are you as a Christian going to make room for the gay people in your community or whatever? And one of my, my first answer to that would be, you know, there's, there's uh, Jesus, the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him, um, 
you know, shouldn't you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? And, and Jesus responded with the, with, with, with the coin, right? Um, and, and he, he turned, he, he, multiple times, this is, it happens one, multiple times he turns it on them. And then there's times where he doesn't even answer the question. He just, he just asked them a question back. Right. And, and so that was going to be one of the ways I was going to handle that question is first ask them a question back. It's like, well, where's your standard? I don't even know where you stand for me to be able to answer this question correctly. Like, um, you know, uh, is, you know, is, is it a sin to be homosexual? Ask the news reporter that is 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 it? And he says, "I'm asking you the question." You know, you just throw it back in his face. You make them squirm. You make them answer. Um, so there's certain things like that where, and I still have no unashamedly happy to answer that question. But I'm going to, um, as a Christian, push them and not and not play their silly games because their games are all silly. Uh, and I'm going to be very clear where my convictions are at and stand and answer that question in the end. But I'm going to start in a place where it's like making them expose them and where that. So I think I think. Christian politicians need to be straight up unashamed of the supremacy of scriptures in their lives, um, but be, need to be a lot more, uh, need to employ a lot more wisdom on how to be a Christian politician in, in this world without capitulating to the, the age of our times. Yeah, I think it's more than silliness, it's uh, insidious. The questions are not asked uh, in the hope of getting a clear answer. They're used to entrap you and to wound you and harm you. So when you know that someone is setting a trap for you, what do you do? Walk right into it? No. You you say, okay, you're being duplicitous. I'm going to call out your duplicity by asking you a question. That's what the Lord did. And that's the kind of wisdom that is often lacking. Um, I also think that one of the things you need to do is count the cost. What I mean by that is, do I really have to win? Could I live with losing? If I can live with losing, if I lose on principle, my, I'm at peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, in the long run, uh, as Doug says, stupidity doesn't win. Uh, I think that we're in a, in, a, in a state in our society where we've got a lot of capital uh, to waste. I'm talking about moral capital, not merely uh, you know, uh, you know, financial capital. Uh, there's a lot of ruin in a country. I think it was Burke that said that. In other words, um, things can get bad and worse and worse and worse and worse for a long time, particularly if you're a nation like the United States where we've had a lot of uh, margin. You know, what happens to young people who are heirs to fortunes is they have a, a lot of margin for stupidity, and so they get stupid. And uh, that's kind of where we are. We have really no challengers. Chinese, are you serious? Russia, are you serious? Yes, they're not, they're not, they, have, they have no ability to, to challenge us on a military basis, uh, economic basis. Now, that may not be true for very long. Right, right. <laughs> But at the moment, uh, we can be stupid in flamboyant ways. I I teach a civics class at Logos School, and we're just finishing up, kind of work our way through history, and we're finishing up the Roman uh, era, and just thinking about freshly again that the Republic, the Roman Republic is crumbling. I mean, Caesar Augustus is the first emperor, 
And he's the one, of course, that calls for the census that causes Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. And so you have this, this in, the, in the moment where this republic is crumbling and full of all kinds of political intrigue and assassinations and, and the, the political uh, uh, stability is, is falling apart and then you've got this empire emerging and, this, and these emperors that, where there's sort of this shell of the republic left, there's still a senate, there's still you know, some representation but it's really being run by these emperors. And you think, and you look at that moment and you think, there's no way this can last. And then it does for almost another 500 years. And, and it's, it's, it's startling. And I, and I think, and, there's, and historians have puzzled over this for centuries. How did it keep going so long? And there's a number of different hypotheses, but I, I honestly think that one of the reasons it lasted for as long as it did is because of all the Christians. <laughs> Me, and, and you end up with, you know, by 300, you've actually got a, a, a Christian emperor. You've got Constantine, who's legalizing Christianity and, and, and calling for, um, you know, uh, Sundays to be uh, days off and um, beginning to outlaw a pagan um, uh, sacrifices. And, um, but it's, it, but I think it's easy to be really stuck in our moment and think it's so dark, it's so terrible, and it is. And at the same time, I also think with all that capital. Well, and the wheat and the tares grow together. That's you ever, right. ever thought about the fact that there's not a single centurion that's a bad guy in the New Testament? <laughs> They're all good guys. Hmm. And these are guys of high moral caliber. That's how they got the job. And they're disillusioned with the empire. So they're, they're at a place where they're looking. And in each of the stories with the centurion, they're already paying for synagogues to be built. <laughs> they're doing stuff. Right. And you know, when you get to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, here's a God-fearing centurion. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you know, there's a, there's a, there, was a lot of dis, there was a lot of decay. There was a lot of people that lost faith in the empire. And they were looking for answers. And that's the moment that the church stepped into and said, Christ and, is Lord. And this goes to, you know, people say, well, you know, we're, there's no politics in the New Testament. And I think one of the things that, that you know, you noted was, but it, there is, but not like you think it is. Because you think in, we, we've been trained to think in socialistic, totalitarian terms. But what does Paul do in almost all of his letters? After establishing the gospel, he says, here's how you make it land. Here's how to build it. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your sons. Servants. Those are all political statements. The household code, the household codes that you have in almost all these letters is the plan. Yeah. And it's what took over the Roman Empire. And when you think about households that are in disarray, uh, you know, our minds go to the heads of house who are just nutcases. And we, and we lose sight of the fact that the kids are looking outside of their homes for hope. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, uh, the kids already know that their parents are nut jobs. I knew my parents were messed up <laughs> when I was like seven years old. Mm. Uh, I didn't look to them for leadership. I didn't look to them for, as examples. I, you know, I loved them. I had a sense of uh, I had compassion or whatever you want to say. 
but I knew that they were not uh, exemplary. Mm. And I was looking outside for examples. Mm. Um, we got one more one question. More, yeah, I was going to say yeah, one more yeah. question, and then um, we're going to do some raging Cajun dancing. <laughs> All right, let me apologize in advance if this is kind of wordy. Um, with the fact that the dominant eschatological position amongst confessing evangelicals is premillennial or even dispensational, or at least it's an eschatology which looks to a future return of Christ that is primarily concerned with the church being rescued because we lose down here, Does, do you guys or the panel believe that church leaders need to come together in the form of a council or a synod on eschatology, uh, which by the way has never occurred before, uh, for the dual purpose of educating and seeking unity based on what scripture alone teaches for the end goal of building communities who understand how we should live since Christ has already won and his kingdom will never end. <laughs> can, can, um, I, can I go first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I like, go I like it when Knox wants to go first. Yeah, because so I have two answers to that. I, I, think there's, I think this is really important. There's a lot of people who had that particular eschatology that were more post-millennial than post-millennials at the time. Yeah. So when the rubber meets the road, there's some people who understand that this really is, our eschatology works out from how we understand the gospel, and a lot of people don't understand that they have a disconnect. <laughs> but the ones who get this gospel thing right, you'll start seeing that when the rubber meets the road, John MacArthur acted post-meal yeah. and yeah. was out there like, you don't have the authority to come into my church and tell me the people who I bury, the people who I marry, you ain't gonna tell us, well, when we can't have church, yeah. right? And he just stood there and said, I'm, a, I'm just gonna take it. And he fought and he, he, he just did a great job. And we had people who were post-mill who were like, we gotta, you know, or who didn't share his eschatological position, who were like, make sure you're wearing your mask. You can only have 500 people here today at church. And so there's a practical reality to that question that has been, I, I've been very encouraged to watch the charismatics, who, a lot of my charismatic brothers and sisters who will be speaking in tongue and praying that the rapture is tomorrow will be some of the most post-millennial folks building companies, <laughs> making great products, selling them to people and planting trees. It's like, wow. You know, and so there is a practice. And so with people like this, what I want to do is I want to be subversive and I want to throw a party. Every time that they do something that's awesome, I'm like, woo, praise God. Let's go speak in tongues. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go have a Cajun, Raging Cajun dance party. You know, whatever. I want to encourage them because they're going to have an, an internal conflict. <laughs> and they're going to keep building. They're going to keep building. They're going to want this building to actually have some blessing long term. When, so when these charismatic folks start a school, praise God, <laughs> let's go speak in tongues. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm serious. So one group I want to have a party with because I want to encourage them and subversively get at that, their eschatological position. But there's another group where it's like, y'all need trouble. Y'all need COVID 2.0 because COVID 2.0 makes y'all fight with, with the biblical eschatology, <laughs> right? You don't have this authority to come in here and do this. God has... The reason they can argue like this is because they do believe in the lordship of Christ over this place, in this town, in this city, in this church, in this world. They believe it's God's will. That's why they can make the proclamation that you don't have the authority here to do this. 
And so while they're talking one thing, they're being inconsistent. And I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to have that conversation, but I want to encourage as much as I can where they're being consistent at. And for these guys, it's like, oh, y'all need more fight. Here goes another good fight for you. Here goes another good fight for you. And when trouble comes, these people align. And so I, my answer is one group I want to throw a party for, another group I want to pray for trouble. <laughs> Reminds me of the, the parable that Jesus tells about the father and the two sons where he tells the, the, the son, you know, go do this. And the son says, I won't go. And then he decides to go. And the other, he, he says, I'll go. And then he doesn't go. And, the, and so I, I think that's part of what you're getting at is you got people who got the right eschatology on paper um, but then are not really living it out. Not, I mean, it, it, if you're going to be inconsistent, which way do you want to be inconsistent? You ab- exactly. You absolutely want to be the, fa- the son who actually decided to obey, yeah. even if on paper you were... He said no first. He said no. Uh, exactly right. Ro- Romans 1, 16, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power, power. of God. It's the power of God. And when we go out, it, 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 it blows my mind that there's a, such this disconnect that we believe that the cross was powerful to change hearts and minds. And yet, somehow, we don't believe that that same death and resurrection of Christ is not going to have an ultimate impact uh, throughout creation, throughout this world, throughout history. An easy, an easy um, way to think about this. Remember, when Jesus ascended into heaven, you know, there was, what, 500 people? watching, or 500 Christians, let's just say, in, in Acts chapter 1, and then Paul comes, or, or even before Paul, um, uh, Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost happens, two, 3,000 Christians uh, um, uh, were converted, and then by Acts chapter 6, another 3,000 Christians were converted, and you're just starting to see this gospel start to build up and start to roll out, and then by the time, let's say, Paul died, you know, he'd kind of gone out through the region, um, maybe, maybe there was 20,000 Christians, by then, I don't, you know, is that a fair conservative estimate? And if, and if Paul came back to Lafayette, Louisiana, and saw churches on every corner like Starbucks, um, you know, I'm, in, I'm in from Texas, and there is a, just about a church on every corner. If Paul wasn't post-mill then, he would be post-mill now. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Millions, uh, you know, it's estimated millions of Christians. In the U.S., there's estimated 40 to 70 million Christians here in the U.S. And Paul saw 20,000. And, and Paul comes back and he says, this is the power of the gospel. Mm. This is the power of gospel. And he's just looking at America, you know. Look at, look at Canada. Look at the gospel. I mean, Paul comes to America. The gospel wasn't even close when Paul was, wasn't even close to getting to America. The savages hadn't spread, hadn't, hadn't gotten the gospel, and and, and the, the the pilgrims hadn't come yet. I mean, you know, this is we're two thousand years away from Paul, and Paul comes back to a place that he never knew of in the world, to America, and sees all these Christians, and that's the power of the gospel. Like Jesus wins, like Jesus wins because he was resurrected from the dead. He was given all authority, and he gave all that authority to us. Like, how does how does the How does the gospel who comes into your life and changes your heart against your will, you come kicking and screaming into the heavens, into the kingdom, you know, you you come, whenever we baptize a baby up front at our church and the baby's crying and 
And we're like, well, such is the kingdom of heaven. You know? This, this Happened to us all, little ones. This, yeah, we, we know what you're going Everybody. through right now. <laughs> you know? And, and, but it's, ultimately, this is about believing the power of, of the gospel. Is, is what it's about. I, w- I, want, uh, I want Chris to close with the story of Elijah Craig. Oh. <laughs> because so, I think this is, this is, this is great. This yeah, is, this is to bring everything the, full circle. bottle of Elijah Craig here? Okay. So uh, anyway, this, uh, this brand of uh, bourbon is uh, named Elijah Craig. Pasta. Uh, so do you know the story of Elijah Craig? He was a Baptist pastor. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm about to speak in tongues. <laughs> so I, I, I learned the story when I, I was in Louisville a few months back and uh, speaking at a conference. And of course, that's, you know, bourbon country. And, and so a guy gets up and he's telling the story of Elijah Craig. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. So uh, Elijah Craig uh, was an unlicensed Baptist pastor in Virginia that was jailed for preaching. Kind of like, uh, you know, Bunyan. John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, he didn't stop preaching uh, just because he was in prison. He would preach very loudly from prison, and crowds would gather, so they built walls around the prison to keep people away. <laughs> this is like Canada, building a wall around James Coates Church. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Anyway, he, he was also a, a patriot, uh, fought in the revolution, was a friend of Patrick Henry. Uh, but he had a congregation of about 600 souls and decided that God wanted them to go out into the wilderness and uh, found a town. So they founded Lebanon. Uh, today, Lebanon, what would be Lebanon, Kentucky, but it, he changed it, the name to Georgetown in honor of George Washington. So Georgetown, uh, Kentucky was founded by Elijah Craig. He also uh, established a number of businesses. He believed that every pastor should have uh, a a way of interacting and relating to the men in his church. Every man should, every pastor should have a trade. So he was a, he was a, a big believer in bivocational pastoral ministry. And uh, he st- so he established several businesses, and they were all successful. And the last business he, he established was uh, the whiskey business. <laughs> and uh, he was the, he's been credited. It's been debated. Of course, this is one of those things that everybody wants to take credit for after the fact. But uh, he w- he's been credited with inventing bourbon. He was the first to put uh, the whiskey in charred barrels and uh, come up with the 51% formula, all that kind of stuff. So uh, when you see Elijah Craig, think Baptist pastor. Uh, and it's amusing because the Baptists don't own him. And the reason they don't own him is because of those church ladies in the early 19th century and the temperance movement. Yeah. So this, is, this guy is like uh, pretty significant at a number of levels yeah. in terms of entrepreneurial skill, creativity, leadership, boldness. Uh, getting arrested. Getting arrested. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but I was just thinking like, I mean, I mean that's, that's, uh, that's not biblical for the state to license preachers. There's back our jurisdictions. Jesus gives pr- the, the church the authority to send out preachers, not the state, right? Um, so he's, 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 he's um, submitting to the lordship of Christ by preaching and defying that, that state law. Then he's going, he's establishing a community through businesses with his church, and he's providing bourbon. 
Praise God. We need more Baptists like that. Yeah, we do that and that. Yeah. Make, and that. That's post mill. That's post mill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Knox, hey, you want to take us out? Yeah, hey, thank you guys so much for joining us and coming to the conference at Tacticon. And you, what next time you have to have your own speaking opportunity? Because yeah. So hey, if you're single, get married. If you're married, have you some kids? And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until next conference, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. Thank you, guys. You sit in church week after week, embracing the truth of God's word. You believe the gospel and claim Jesus Christ as your Lord. Yet you continue to struggle with pornography. You feel like a hypocrite, returning to the sin you hate that mocks the God you love. You desperately wonder, is lasting freedom even possible? Yes, you can overcome pornography, but not alone. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Only by repeatedly running from sin to Christ with other believers can you hope to enjoy lasting freedom. You can live with purity and integrity. Take courage, seek accountability, and do whatever is necessary. Get equipped at accountabletoyou.com.